Please open your Bibles as we continue our exposition of Ephesians to the fifth chapter, and we will begin reading at verse 21. Breaking into a context, but I trust you remember the context and have been reading it, the beginning at verse 21 of Ephesians, the fifth chapter. Let's bow before the Lord in prayer. Our gracious God, we ask that you will use the preaching of the word that Christ himself may be exalted, the one who was crucified and who rose from the dead, the one who intercedes and is coming again. We ask that our marriages will be Christ-centered. We pray that you will give to us through your powerful Holy Spirit the ability to believe and to repent. Yes, even on the spot as we hear the word proclaimed as we hear those areas of our lives exposed that need your sovereign grace and mercy in order that we may be the husbands and the wives that you've called us to be. We pray that those who do not know you at all may see their need of the Savior. We pray that young people will be well prepared for marriage as they hear and remember deep down the words of this text and its exposition. And we pray, Father, that those who are not called to marriage in our congregation will also benefit because it is all about Jesus and his gospel. These things we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Ephesians chapter 5, beginning with verse 21. This is the word of the Lord. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord for The husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. A number of years ago, a couple came to me from our community and asked if I would give to them marriage counsel. That's happened a good deal over the years. What made this particular thing unique was that they weren't believers in Jesus. And they came to me and said, we aren't believers in Christ. We don't want to become believers in Christ. We just want a good marriage. Will you meet with us? Well, I did meet with them numbers of times and opened the Word of God to them, actually evangelistically, in the hopes that they would hear the gospel and be saved. To my knowledge, they never came to faith in Christ. I continued to hear from them a while later, and they said, my, our marriage is so much better So they were applying scriptural principles. They actually said to me, we believe the Bible is the Word of God and we want to apply its principles, but we don't want to become Christians. Unique and unusual situation. But here's the point. 
you can actually, on one level, apply the principles of God's Word to your marriage and have a better marriage, but that's not what the text is about. The text is not about having a better marriage. The text is about being Christ-centered in your marriage, and that couple was never Christ-centered in their marriage. As far as I know, they never came to know Jesus. They never understood the gospel, even though the gospel was clearly presented to them. I've lost touch over the years, so perhaps they have. Maybe that was seed that was sown, and the Lord has blessed it, and they were converted. But the point is simply this. The text is not addressed to unbelievers, even though I think it has great evangelistic value. The text is addressed to God's people, those who know the Lord Jesus, who are called to have a christ centered marriage based upon the gospel of Jesus Christ. So let me be plain. The culture may not determine these things for us. The Bible alone determines these things. So put the Bible in your hand and ask, what does God call me to be in my marriage? How does he call me as a husband and as a wife to relate to my spouse And eventually, as we will see, to our children and even in the workplace in a way that puts the gospel first. Leon Morris made the statement, Paul here addresses himself to the duties of believers, not their rights. And that is extremely important. The Apostle Paul is not addressing rights. He is addressing my duty as a husband, your duty as a wife. So the first thing we see as we come to the text is that the Apostle Paul gives to us, and this is God's word, He gives to us three basic instructions. And the first instruction that the Apostle calls upon us to understand is that we are called to mutually submit to one another. So he says, before even dealing with submission of wives to husbands and the authority of the husband in the home, he says in verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, this does not mean that God has not given an order of authority in the home and in the workplace that will follow in the verses. But it is essential that the order of authority be preceded by the common call to humility. Otherwise, authority will be abused and wrenched from its proper context. Now, the reason for this mutual submission, according to verse 21, if you look at it, is the fear of Christ. Literally, it's translated, in the fear of Christ, or out of reverence for Christ. Someone has rightly said the believer who has the proper reverence for Christ will have the proper respect for other believers. Now that's Paul's point here. He's teaching here what he teaches elsewhere. Romans 12.10, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. Philippians 2.3, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. And so before he ever addresses husbands and wives and headship and authority and submission, he says, look, all of you must have an attitude of mutual submission, that is to say of humility, one to another. And I wonder, some of you who are having real struggles in your homes and in your marriages, I wonder if you need to pause here and simply ask the question, might this not be where the real problem lies? A husband to a wife, a parent to a child, an employer to an employee, having a submissive, humble attitude? Yes. Honor and humility must be shown without derailing the divine order of things. Are you humble? 
Have you contrasted yourselves with the majesty of God? Do you understand that the cross of Jesus and his shed blood should make us to be humble before one another? So the Lord also gives an instruction for the order that he has ordained in marriage. And so we see the second thing here, the second instruction for wives to submit to their own husbands. He puts it this way, wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Let's read verses 22 through 24 again. Look at it. Wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their own husband. So within the framework of mutual submission, wives are called to voluntary submission to their husbands. This does not imply inferiority, nor does it demand that all women be subordinate to all men. The motive for this subordination is Christ. Knowing Christ, marriage portrays the relationship that exists between Christ and his church. Just as the church is subordinate to Christ who is the head, so wives are to subordinate themselves to their husbands who are their heads. Christ is head, that is to say he's the authority over, he is the sovereign over the church, and husbands are placed by God in the position of leadership in marriage. Therefore, you wives are called to subordinate yourselves to your husbands, verse 22 says, as to the Lord. Now, sometimes it may be that your husbands fail in their duties of love and sometimes fail miserably. Then just as slaves were commanded to do their work out of reverence to the Lord in Colossians 3.22, so this motive must be sufficient for you as well. Charles Hodge made the remark that the wife's obedience to her husband is to be regarded as part of her obedience to the Lord, and that's the ultimate issue. Ladies, the ultimate issue is not your husband. The ultimate issue is its obedience to the Lord. Look, I didn't write this. I'm simply the messenger bringing what God's Word says. And God's Word says that this is the call of the Christian wife. It's part of your obedience to the Lord to be submissive to your husband. Now, on the other hand, as we shall see, in Christian homes, there's no excuse for a wife, generally speaking, to struggle with this because she will be loved by a husband who knows Jesus, and it is a joy to follow and support a husband whom she has no doubt has her best interests at heart. She will follow her husband, verse 24 says, look at it, verse 24 says, in everything, should submit in everything to their husbands. Now, of course, we do not absolutize that everything. In home settings, when a wife is not loved by a godly man, the Lord is not honored. That husband may demand of the wife certain things that are contrary to God's word. And at that point, he has overstepped his authority and has no right to demand of his wife what is contrary to God's word. And then a wife has a responsibility to obey God and not man. But that's not what Paul is talking about here. What Paul sees here is a godly man, a godly woman. You both know the gospel. You both trust in Christ. You both want to honor him. Now, for those who say... Paul is just telling women to act the way that they were expected to act in their culture. 
Well, there's a lot that can be said about that. First, notice the text is not grounded in culture. The text is grounded in the gospel. He does not ground this in culture. He doesn't say, well, you women are expected to act this way and, and we just don't want to, uh, to ruffle things as we present the gospel and so this is how you're to act. He doesn't ground it there at all. He grounds it in who Jesus is as head over the church who loved and gave himself for the church and how the church is to respond and what is portrayed in marriage in that relationship between husband and wife as the relationship ultimately between Christ and his people. That's the ground. And the second thing is I actually did some research on the uh, culture, the Phrygian culture, as I have from time to time, in which Ephesus was set, and the moral decadence of the world was unlike what you would have found in Greece or even in Rome, as decadent as that was. And there was very little there that could even be called marriage because the sexual impurity of the Phrygian nations was so incredibly deep. Matter of fact, one author says, as a cultural and religious center, Ephesus and its environment were open to all contemporary secular and religious currents and developments. The cult of the Great Mother and the Artemis Temple stamped this city more than others as a bastion and bulwark of women's rights. So what was prevalent in Ephesus and environs in that day would have been an ancient equivalent of the women's lib movement. The Apostle Paul is not saying, live the way you're expected to live. He's saying, I'm calling you to be countercultural. I'm calling you to live the way Christ calls you to live. Because this isn't happening in your culture is not the point. You live that way because Christ is calling you to live this way. So that's the instruction to the wives. Now, the Apostle Paul gives another instruction, and that's to us who are husbands. And I want you to note this third basic instructions that husbands are commanded to love their wives is the longest portion of the text. And it's the longest portion of the text because the greater responsibility rests upon us. So let's read again verses 25 through 32. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Now we need to work through this. Husbands, you are the head of your wife. Verse 23 says that. You are the head of your wife. That means you are the authority. But your headship is the headship of service. Because it is all grounded in Christ's death for his church. Remember how the Lord Jesus spoke of this in Mark's gospel in chapter 10. Speaking of his own atoning work, he said, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. That's our model. 
You must model leadership for your wife after the pattern of the love that Christ showed to his church when he died for her. And you owe it to your wife, a better translation than ought, you owe it to her. But what is the pattern that we are to follow? Well, again, verse 25, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Present tense, continuous action. It doesn't mean you do it one time. It means that we husbands are to learn to do this all of the time. It's something that's ongoing. The only way to learn what love is, is from a view of Christ's sacrifice of himself for his church on the cross. When God commands us through Paul to love our wives, he founds the whole matter in the cross. He tells the old, old story once again. Christ died for the church to make her holy, washing with water through the word, his bride. And maybe the Apostle Paul has in mind Ezekiel 16 when God sees Israel as an infant in her blood. And he picks her up and redeems her and cleanses her and brings her to maturity. By means of his atoning death, the complete transformation of the bride is promised, free from spot or wrinkle or any blemish, but holy and blameless. Christ died for us. We, the church, are his bride. He puts upon us the bridal clothes. The bride will be presented in the beauty of Christ's own perfection. The justified will be sanctified and eventually glorified. This Christ has done for his bride And this we husbands are called to pattern our lives after and to foster in our wives. So what is Paul saying here? It's real simple. Love her, man. Love your wife. Chrysostom, one of the church fathers, said, Wouldst thou that thy wife should obey thee as the church doth Christ? Have care thyself for her as Christ for the church. And if it should be needful that thou shouldst give thy life for her, or be cut to pieces a thousand times, or endure anything whatever, refuse it not. Yea, if thou hast suffered this, thou hast done what Christ did. For thou doest this for one with whom thou wert already united, but he for her who rejected him and hated him. There was an article that I read a few years ago that every time I think of this text, I I remember. It was written at the zenith of um, interest in the the Titanic. A society influenced by the gospel was demonstrated by the, the women and children first attitude on the part of the men on the Titanic as it was sinking. This informative article pointed out that in 1996, a boat sank off the coasts of Indonesia and hundreds died. But in this instance, the men got off and they let the women drown. What do you think of that, men? The article stated, such a perversion of the natural order is inevitable consequence of a culture that rejects the atonement of Jesus Christ as a central ordering principle for society. For 1,000 years, this principle has guided Western civilization. Simply stated, that principle is this. The groom dies for his bride. 
the groom dies for his bride. The alternative is not merely G.I. Jane, it's barbarism, said the article. That's good. And I think that probably most of the men in this church, if we were on something like the Titanic, would say women and children first. Paul's point is women and children first every day, every moment, every second, applying the gospel to our lives so that the leadership we offer to our wives is a gospel-centered, blood-bought leadership. Do you see that? That's the point. Not just when the Titanic is sinking, guys, but every day. So we husbands are further called upon to love our wives as our own bodies. Look at verses 28 to 30. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. Who loves his, he who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body. Just as Christ loved the church, which is his body, so the husband analogously to Christ as head must love his wife because his wife is his body. Christ loves the church, his body. Husbands, love your wives, your body. In this way, to love your wife is to love yourself and to nourish and care for yourself, just as Christ does the church, for we are all members of his body. We are in union with Christ. You are in union with your wife and she with you, and so you are to love your wife as your own body. And in light of this, the apostle says, he speaks by divine inspiration of the fact that Genesis 2.24, that was read this morning by Pastor McDonald, refers beyond the marriage of Adam and Eve and of subsequent husbands and wives. He says, therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and cleave unto his wife, and the two will become one flesh. You know, some couples never learn that. Some wives never learn learn this leaving and cleaving principle. Some husbands never learn this leaving and cleaving principle. It's a problem in their lives and in their marriages for years. But that's the principle. Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother and cleave unto his wife, and the two will become one flesh, their own family unit. For this reason, that is in the context of redemption, just described, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. What does he mean by one flesh? Well, of course, this includes the sexual union that is God's good gift, not only for procreation, but for intimate communion between a husband and wife. And that's why, young man, young lady, young people, you should guard your sexual purity for Christ's sake, for the husband or wife that God may have for you in the future. This is God's blessing that is reserved for the covenant of marriage that mirrors the communion and covenant that exists between Christ and his people. But it's more than, than the sexual union that he has in mind here, though that's included. It's a oneness. It's a unity, not a fusion, but a union of mind and purpose and a body. It is a oneness that defies description. Those of you who love the Lord and love one another and have been married for many years understand that union better and better, but it's surely hard to describe, isn't it? It's pretty difficult. And that's why Paul can only say it's a mystery. 
He says that in verse 32. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Paul can only say this union of husband and wife is a mystery just as our union with Christ is ultimately a mystery. Because marriage, we've just got to see this, marriage points beyond itself to this ultimate mystery of the relationship between Christ and his blood-bought people, and his blood-bought people, his bride, and Christ, the husband, the head. So those are the three instructions that he gives. They're very plain, they're very clear, they're not difficult, although many in the church are making them difficult. I'll say something about that in a while. But the second thing we see here is Paul's great summary. Paul's great summary is found in verse 33. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. The husband then must love his wife. Paul thinks it's so important that he repeats it in a final summary. The husband must love his wife. And this is an imperative. It is a command. We don't dominate. We're leaders among equals, but we lead. That's headship. And we lead lovingly our wives. So to use John Stott's language, men, we're called to be lovers, not ogres. And some of us, let's be frank, can be ogres. And the wife must fear her husband. Look at verse 33. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects or reverences, actually the word is fears, her husband. Now that doesn't mean the wife should be cowering in fear. This returns us to the theme of verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And now he uses that very word regarding the wife's attitude toward the husband. Reverencing Christ, reverencing, respecting, fearing the husband. One writer calls this admiring and festive fear. Some of you ladies remember well the fear, the kind of fear, the excited, joyful fear that you had when you first came down the aisle to meet your husband. All of us can at least begin to imagine the the right fear, the right joyful fear, the right kind of fear that will fill our hearts when Jesus comes again and the bridegroom comes for his bride. And that's the kind of fear that he's calling upon the wife to have toward her husband. It's admiring and festive fear. It's thrilling fear. It's joyful fear. It's admiring and festive reverence. Because when you look at that man with all of his faults and all of his failings, you're looking beyond him to the Lord Jesus Christ. Just as you husbands, when you look to your wife, look beyond whatever faults and failings there are, and you see Christ died for his bride. And I die for my bride. Now will you notice that the command here in verse 33, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. The command doesn't say anything about your spouse's merits. Again, he's not dealing with rights, he's dealing with duties. 
He doesn't say anything about your spouse's performance. So the Apostle Paul doesn't say, now wives, you respect your husband if. And it certainly doesn't say, husbands, well, you love your wife if. If she's this way, if she's that way, if she... If she merits it in your eyes. The whole point is the gospel says I merited hell. The gospel says God intervened in the person and work of Jesus. The gospel says Christ died for me on the cross. The gospel says I have no rights. Well, there are rights according to the Bible. But I'm talking about this text. And this text teaches me to focus on my duties, not my supposed rights. So let's take all of this that we've seen in the text and bring it together in a final point. The gospel and marriage. The gospel and marriage. Shall we? And I want to say several things about the gospel and marriage as we think about this text and marriage and our culture. And let's start with culture. Our culture is thoroughly confused about marriage. Do I have to tell you that? Do not take your cue from culture. Recent discussion has uh, gone around this. I actually saw this in a, a British news article. Uh, women talking about why, why can't our husbands take our names when we marry? Well, if you don't believe the Bible, why not? You see, why, why, why do you ladies take your husband's name? Do you know why? Adam and Eve were both called Adam. Right? In Genesis, Adam and Eve are both called Adam. Adam, man, Isha, woman, are both called Adam, man, humanity. And you take your husband's name because he's the head, not you. That's why. The husband is the head, not the wife. But if you don't have this biblical perspective, then anything goes. Recently, our country has hit an all-time moral low in the prevalent application of the great term marriage to unnatural unions. The point is just this. Our culture is drunk on its own autonomy. Man, even in his pre-fall condition, did not have the right to legislate this matter of marriage. Much less after the fall. Let me be clear. We do not have competence to legislate. Apart from God's word, we sink into moral chaos. You know, there's some people who actually think that if a thing is legal, then it's moral. That's not true. Surely you don't think that. The standard is God's word. And so do not take your cue from the culture. Now that's what's behind 
many in the church who want to redefine roles, and it revolves around the word head. Now notice here the Apostle Paul in verse 23. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. So there are some who are arguing that this word kephale, head, means source rather than authority. But I will assure you, folks, the lexical and contextual evidence is overwhelming that kephale means head, it means authority, it does not mean source. Everywhere in Paul it means head. In chapter 1 of Ephesians, verse 22, turn there, Ephesians 1, 22. The Apostle says, speaking of Christ and His exaltation, and He put all things under His feet and gave Him as head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all and in all. Authority over the church. Ephesians 4.15. I hope you remember the context when we preach through it. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is head into Christ, which is another way of saying that we are growing and maturing under the authority of Christ. And here in Ephesians 5 The word kephale, meaning authority, is underscored by another word the apostle uses, hupatasso, that means to submit. Wives are to submit, not to a source, but to an authority. Colossians 1.18, he is the head of his body, the church. Colossians 2, holding fast to the head over and over and over again to see head in this and most passages as something other than authority over, is an act of desperation. The Bible does not teach egalitarianism, it teaches complementarianism. It is a simple matter of submission to the Word of God, and this has become a real problem in the church. Maybe some of you are not aware of how much this has become a problem in the church. But let me tell you, it's a huge problem in the church today. The church wants to be like the world and bends to the winds of cultural change, and so it wants to get rid of this idea of the headship of the man in the home. But there is no biblical justification for that viewpoint, none whatsoever. And so this whole attitude that's pervading the church of trying to to win the loss by being something other than what we're called to be as the church, by appealing to our culture... Don't do that, Christian. Don't do that, Covenant Presbyterian Church. Don't do that, Presbyterian Church in America. And Paul anchors all of this in redemptive history, all the way back to Genesis and creation, for that matter, and in the work of Jesus Christ for his people. Now, as we think about the gospel of marriage, let me underscore again, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, because you know your own hearts that by nature, in the sinful woman's heart, there is a desire to dominate your husband. 
This is not always accomplished through more obvious and overt ways of domination, but sometimes in very subtle ways. Not only nagging, but mothering, tricking, manipulating. So just search your hearts. And if any of that is found in your heart, believe and repent. Now, right now. But husbands, we must love our wives. As Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Again, present tense, continued action. And I think that in part this means for us that Since it's a present tense continued action, that I as a husband need to remember every day the gospel and how it relates to my relationship with my wife. And I need to believe and repent before the Lord, and yes, before her too, on occasion. For forgetting the gospel, and forgetting the shed blood of Jesus, and forgetting that the redemption of Jesus through his shed blood on the cross of his church is to be mirrored in the way in which I love my wife every day. The present tense continued action means that I have to stoke the fire because a sinful man's heart can grow cold in its love to the Lord and in its love to his wife. So every day I get upon my knees and I ask, Lord, give me that warmth of heart that is necessary that I understand the gospel better and better and that I love you as you should be loved and I love my wife as you have called me to love her. Most Christian women who are thinking biblically will not desire to dominate a man who's, in whose love she feels secure. And when there's a track record through the years of a man loving his wife, yes, he makes his mistakes and he fails, but there's a track record, there's a trajectory of headship that is loving and guidance that is biblical and Christ-centered, then that simply builds a wife's willingness to be the woman that God would have her to be. And so when you're loving your wife in tangible ways, your wife will learn to grow secure in your love. And there certainly should never pass a day in which you do not tell your wife that you love her by words, by deeds, by gifts, by time, by listening to her, by talking with her, by touch. Love her. And the Bible says we are to love our wives exclusively. There's only one woman that may love that you may love as, as a wife, and that is your wife. God's plan for marriage is monogamy. Christ has only one church for whom he died, and we have only one bride that we are called to love. He loves his bride with a jealous love. And I ask you, has there ever been a time in our society in which we have taken so lightly vows and taken so lightly the sacred? We don't even know how to have worship services anymore in the church. We've forgotten reverence and sacredness, much less in marriage. Charles Hodge said this, 19th century, the greatest social crime next to murder which anyone can commit is to seduce the affections of a wife from her husband and of a husband from his wife. I'm going to read that to you again. 
The greatest social crime next to murder, which anyone can commit, is to seduce the affections of a wife from her husband or of a husband from his wife. And it's possible to be monogamous externally and to be polygamous in your heart. The gospel informs our attitudes as Christ loves his body, the church, so you must love your wife. I read a statement of a gentleman just this week. He said, there are too many, many, there are too many rich businessmen. Now, whether you're rich or not, it's applicable. There are too many rich businessmen who wake up late in life to the fact that although they have a lot of money, they also have a bitter and lonely wife. Neglect does not make the heart grow fonder. So the picture that Paul gives here is of a husband dying daily for his wife. So you're neglecting your wife. You want to go play golf. Nothing wrong with golf. But you're neglecting your wife and you want to go play golf. Kill it. Die to it. Slay it. No, no, I need time with my wife. Well, you say I give her quality time. After the game. Come on. The picture Paul gives is of a husband dying for his bride. And young people, there's no way that many of you can begin to understand the seriousness of the decisions that you will make regarding dating, sex, and marriage. No way unless you hear it from your parents and hear it from your ministers. Take God's word for it. What will you do when the restraints of the home and the family and your church here are lifted and you go off to school somewhere? And usually when you think about the possibility of marriage, usually the first consideration for most young people is the notion of sexual attraction. Well, let me ask you this. What will you do if after one year's marriage, one year of marriage, your spouse is, uh, your spouse is incapacitated and you no longer could have sex? You no longer could be intimate in that way. You see, young people, sex is the icing on the cake. It's not the whole cake. A whole cake of icing is pretty disgusting. (laughs) If you don't have the icing, you can still have the cake. You can have a marriage that's a good marriage, a God-honoring marriage, even if the gift of sexual intimacy is taken away. So it can't be first. It must not be first. Sex is an inestimable blessing in marriage, but you cannot base your marriage on that or on the passing of physical beauty or on, or on innumerable things that are valued by the world. I mean, I just can hardly believe it. I mean, there's heaven and hell and God and his attributes and the greatness of his worth and the gospel and We're concerned about nice abs. (laughs) 
so the gospel is altogether the issue. If we would just think biblically. So are you used to thinking about your marriage in view of the atoning work of Jesus Christ? How much that goes by the name of marriage counseling would be unnecessary if we would but live out of the significance of the death of Christ for us. So here's the call from the text to us this morning. Learn to be Christocentric. Learn to be Christ-centered in all of life and in your marriages. And God's people said, Amen. Amen.